braided beards, horned helmets, and the serpent-like silhouettes of longships cutting through the rough ocean waters are some of the most iconic symbols of Vikings in modern media. But these familiar relics of the past may be more cultural myth than cultural memory. Long before the white linen blouse pirates of England set out for sale on the seven seas in search of treasure beyond their wildest dreams, the Vikings were legendary for their mastery of the ocean. Setting off in their revolutionary new ships, they quickly became the bane of every civilization within sailing distance. Their ability to adapt to new surroundings was their greatest strength, helped them become excellent traders. But the Vikings were a scattered bunch who often traveled far from home and didn't keep many records, so most of what we know about them comes from the cultures that survived them. Thus, the legacy of the infamous seafarers has more questions than answers. Who really were the Vikings? What were their lives and their deaths actually like? And perhaps most importantly, what's the deal with those helmets? I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we'll be focusing on a different country, culture, or case and exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. This week, we have the unique opportunity to introduce our first sponsor, Swampy Supply Company, the brainchild of outdoor adventurer and professional graphic designer, Mike Walmack. Swampy Supply Company carries a variety of really cool t-shirts that are inspired by his travels and infused with a rich southern culture and twisted sense of humor unique to him and like minds. Check them out today at SwampySupply.com. And if you love food, facts, and fun stories, then sit back and enjoy the show. Make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. The Vikings are an interesting bunch because they're the first cultural group we've covered on this podcast that aren't an ethnic group. It's true that Vikings are mainly made up of Scandinavian people, but Scandinavian itself is a blanket term for several different groups spread across the northern islands. And even though Scandinavians made up the majority of the Viking population, they weren't the only ones to be called Vikings. In fact, the word Viking actually comes from historical accounts that were written down centuries after the Viking Age had ended. The Vikings called themselves Norsemen, literally men of the north, which later became Norsemen or Norse, and was eventually overtaken by the word Viking. Whichever name you prefer, it was more of a job title than the name of a concrete group of people, which is why they're often considered to be the predecessors of pirates. Also, it looks very impressive on a resume. Viking. Lover of women, slayer of heathens, and drinker of all the scotch you can steal. I'd hire that guy. Many historians argue that the Viking Age began in Denmark around 17, excuse me, around 725, when a group of farmers found themselves facing a problem. Denmark is a heavily forested island with a lot of mountains and rivers, making the terrain fairly difficult to navigate when you've loaded up your goods to trade, so the island's woodworkers eventually devised a ship that was big and sturdy enough to carry goods across the ocean, but small and narrow enough to use in rivers as well. The inhabitants of Denmark had been seafaring traders since the Iron Age, but these versatile new ships opened up a whole new world of opportunity. These boats were so awesome that they even used them as roofs on their houses. When they were no longer able to be used for sea travel, their houses ended up having this distinctive football shape. Despite this amazing archaeological development, the officially recognized timeline of the Viking Age begins about 50 years later with the first recorded Viking raid. 
It was 793 in a quiet monastery in the north of England, a place called Liston Farm. It was about to make history and never forgotten. Now, wait, interesting side note. Liston Farm is also known as the Holy Island. We may cover that in another episode. So, the Norris had been trading for centuries, but a ragtag bunch of sailors had a better plan on getting rich quick. Instead of trading, they'd go into the business of taking. In order to find good targets, they had to follow the money, which was primarily in the hands of kings and churches, two most powerful groups in many European countries. Robbing a king would be insanely profitable, but it came with a lot of risk. I mean, kings live in castles, literal fortresses guarded by entire armies, and that sounds like a real pain. So the Vikings decided to go for the second, much safer option, sack the churches. In places like England, it was completely unthinkable that anyone would dare to attack a church. After all, it was a holy place. So they didn't really have any guards. To the Vikings, though, they were just these really cool buildings full of unguarded loot that was theirs for the taking, and loot is exactly what they did. Or as the monks put it, the wild heathens trampled upon saints' bones and destroyed God's house. During this first raid of Listenfarn, a relatively small group of Vikings was able to basically pull up in their awesome ships, walk to the church with a battle axe, tell the monks to get lost, and kill them if they didn't, and then walk out with a loot in their hand. Dude, that sounds like a great plot for a movie. So they kept what they wanted, you know, silver, gold, precious gems, but they also made off with a bunch of religious relics that were completely useless to them, though they were invaluable to the church. So they ransomed the relics back for even more profit, which point I assume they sailed off into the sunset, giggling about how easy it had been. The people of Listenfarn, on the other hand, picked up the pieces, mourned their dead, and tried to get back to their lives. Many accounts were written following the raid, and one thing that all had in common was the absolute horror at the gall of these strangers that came into the house of the god and took what they pleased. One guy claimed that the Vikings had dragons helping them out. Ha! <laughs> My guess is that guy was hitting the mead. So I'm going to take his story as a firm maybe. Regardless of the deep... Regardless of the details, Liston Farm was a huge win for the Vikings, and it solidified their business model of raiding and ransoming, especially at the churches. Oh, and just to get this out of the way, their helmets didn't have horns. This is a detail that was added to the story long after the end of the Viking Age by some people that had been raided. Because I'm guessing it's easier to say these giants in rad hats took their stuff than admit the truth. The Vikings continued making their regular raids across Europe leaving a path of horrified clergymen. At some point around the mid-800s, these raids brought them into the contact with mid-Middle Eastern cultures, including Muslim Arabs, who were known not only for their extensive trade networks, but were also known for the detailed record-keeping that they had. We'll come back to the record-keeping in a little while in this episode, but for right now, let's talk trade. The first point of contact between Vikings and Muslim Arabs is to believe to have been in 844 when a fleet of 54 Viking ships sailed to Spain, which was under the control of the Arabs at the time. The Caliphate, that's the Arab king, was there and the Vikings, who had heard about how wealthy he was, were coming to collect. The raid was a huge success and again, the Vikings sailed off in the sunset with a fleet full of treasure. 
That lasted them for a good long while. But in 859, they were ready to come back for more. Probably figuring that they had given the caliphate plenty of time to replenish his wealth, they set sail for round two with even more ships and took home the gold and everything else they could get their hands on. According to one record, their ships were so laden with plunder, they sat low in the water. At that point, the Arabs had enough of these jerks, so they decided that they were going to take their treasure back. The Arab naval fleet intercepted the Vikings on their way home and laid waste to the entire fleet, sinking the Vikings and the treasure along with it. I guess it was more important that they prove the point. I get it. A few of the Viking ships managed to escape and tell their tale back home, at which point the Vikings collectively decided that Spain probably wasn't a good deal for them. Even though Spain had ultimately been a bust, the Vikings pushed on eastward in their travels, eventually coming into contact with people from Russia and Constantinople, which was one of the biggest central trading hubs in the world at the time. In 860, the Vikings tried to sack Constantinople, but it had come to no surprise that this was a spectacular failure, considering Constantinople was a massive, well-guarded, and they had the medieval equivalent of flamethrowers loaded with a nifty little concoction called Greek fire, which would burn even on water. Ah, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. So the emperor of Constantinople was impressed that the Vikings were able to put up a decent fight against his insanely cool army. So he allowed the survivors to set up trade settlements in the city and even offered some of them jobs as members of his royal guard. I don't know about you, but that sounds like some Tony Montana stuff to me. So, although some began to settle into a trading outposts, many Vikings continued traveling, raiding along the way. And it was one such group that discovered Iceland in 870. They sailed the island and became local Icelanders. And these Icelanders would go on to become excellent chroniclers, the first to write down the oral histories and tradition of their Viking ancestors. Every pop cultural reference you've ever seen involved characters like Thor, Odin, and Loki, thanks to these Icelanders, and particularly to a man named Snorri Sörlusen. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, as Iceland wasn't the only new place for Vikings to visit in the latter half of the 800s. Another notable example was Ireland. There were people on the island of Arran before the Vikings landed there, but the fishing village called Duvlin was about to be transformed. After the failed raid of Constantinople, the Vikings had taken up a new business model. Instead of taking everything they could get their hands on and cutting down everyone that stood in their way, they started making their raids smaller and less violent. They focused on taking hostages and religious relics that could be ransomed back for all the wealth that they could have gotten by being violent, but it was a lot less work and the profit was just a lot better. This method was frequently used to terrorize Franks and the people of the British Isles, including Ireland. When the Vikings landed in Duvelin, there really wasn't much to take. As I said earlier, it was just a small fishing village. But the Vikings saw something more valuable than a few bags of gold in its place. It was an excellent location for a trading post. They used their connections in Constantinople and across Europe to turn Dublin into an essential trading hotspot, coercing the Irish to play along under the threat of destruction. This worked out for them for a long time, and eventually Dublin became so profitable 
that the Irish were able to use their share of this newfound wealth to kick the Vikings out of Ireland once and for all and keep their sweet new trading posts for themselves. The Vikings were obviously a little annoyed at this, but they had already adapted their strategy and were moving on to new ventures. They basically realized that they developed such a legendary reputation that they didn't even have to attack people. Instead, they just pulled up to shore wherever they wanted to sack, they threatened the inhabitants, and they'd wait for all the treasure to be conveniently carted out to the ships for them. This new custom was known as Dangeld, and while it wasn't great for the people they were extorting, Man, you got to hand it to the Vikings. They were really streamlining that process. In fact, they extorted the Franks so many times that the king eventually ran out of money to pay the Dangeld. Dangeld. So in 911, he paid the Vikings off in land instead. The land was eventually to become Normandy, or Land of the Norse. Here's my personal connection. I'm directly descended from William the Conqueror, Norman king and general badass. So the Vikings settled in Normandy and began to lean more and more into trading and raiding less and less. The Norman conquest of 1066 traditionally marks the end of the Viking Age as the remaining Vikings became known as Normans. Most of them converted to Christianity after conquering England with the help of their allies. All of the cultures the Vikings had originated from, such as Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, continued to grow and thrive and new civilizations joined them, such as Iceland and Greenland, leaving behind a rich oral history and legends so iconic we can still recognize them today. Speaking of legends, have you ever wondered where the days of the week come from? It's such a small detail, but one that's so interwoven into our daily lives it seems strange that most of us don't know the answer. The seven days of the week system is a marking time that was actually invented by Babylonians, an ancient civilization that occupied the areas now known as Iraq and Syria over 4,000 years ago. They originally named the days of the week after the five planets that could be seen with the naked eye. Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, plus the sun and the moon. The same system was later adopted by the Greeks, who passed it on to the Romans, who passed it on to the early Germanic tribes. This is the part where our old friends the Vikings come in. Sunday and Monday were carrying over in honor of the sun and the moon, but the next day of the week was known as Tyre, the Norse god of war, and eventually Anglo-Saxon accents evolved it into two. So instead of Tyre's day, we call it Tuesday. The same process happened with Odin's Day into Woden's Day, which finally became Wednesday. Thor's Day, you guessed it, Thursday. And Frigga's Day became Friday. Please, no one tell him, but I have this Uncle Frey that swears that Friday's really named after him. The only exception is Saturday, which was named after Saturn, the Roman god of fun and feasting. I guess the Vikings were renaming days of the week after their own gods, and they figured Saturn was such a cool guy, he could stay around. So, if the days of the week have changed to reflect the gods of each culture, why do we still use Norse names today? Shouldn't they have been changed by now to something else? Well, by the end of the Viking Age, the Norse had become the Normans and had adopted many of the things that the European society, including Christianity. But they also spread some of their customs 
among other Christians, including their names of the days of the week. Other European societies at the time were way more into writing stuff down than the Vikings had been, so they adopted the Viking days of the week. They began using them in written records, and that cemented them into the English language. Remember that Icelandic guy I mentioned earlier, Snorri Sturluson? We have him to thank for the fact that even of us even know who Odin, Thor, and Frigga are, let alone having weekdays named after them. Good old Snorri is the kind of Icelandic equivalent to the Brothers Grimm in that he made it his mission to travel around the Nordic countries gathering the oral histories of his ancestors and committing them to paper. Unlike the Brothers Grimm, though, Snorri didn't write the collection of short stories. Instead, he put the stories in order, compiling them into one long saga that told the entire mythos of the Norse from beginning to end. This book is called the Prose Edda, and it's often talked about in tandem with another book called the Poetic Edda. Although they have similar names and themes, the Poetic Edda is a collection of ancient poems that reference figures from Norse mythology, and the author is unknown. These two books are pretty much the only surviving sources from the Viking Age, which is ironic considering they were both published 200 years after the end of the Viking Age. History is weird like that, and even the things that survive become distorted by time and by our ever-evolving understanding of the world around us. For example, as a modern audience, we usually assume that ancient cultures viewed gods the same way we do. They believed that many of the stories told about these gods were literal, but can we really be sure about that? In future civilizations, if they took the same approach and looked at our culture, they might think that we all prayed to Santa Claus at the winter solstice, that we left out teeth as offerings to the decidedly nefarious-sounding tooth fairy, and we lived our lives in constant fear of the literal boogeyman. Mickey Mouse would probably be recorded as some kind of patron god to the children, and they assumed that the loyal followers of Garfield didn't work on Mondays Instead, took the day off to eat lasagna. When you think about it that way, it's not hard to see why many historians and archaeologists are now arguing that Viking mythology is less religion and more cultural tradition, like Santa, the Tooth Fairy, and the Boy that Cried Wolf. In other words, the stories are more about entertainment and reinforcing cultural values and traditions than being religious text. Norse gods are particularly interesting examples because even though they're often compared to the Greek and Roman pantheons, there really isn't a one-to-one -one equivalent. The Roman and Greek gods are known for their domains, or the thing that they specialize in. You know, like Aphrodite is the goddess of love, or Ares is the god of war. Later sources often categorize the Norse gods in the same way because it's the framework that they're used to working in, but archaeological sources tell a different story. Instead of having domains over specific things, Norse gods were known for their personalities, their experiences, and interests, making them much more dynamic and unpredictable figures in the legends, as opposed to the more rigid Greek and Roman tales, where gods act more predictably according to whatever their assigned role is. According to the research archaeological, <laughs> according to the research archaeologists have conducted so far, the traditions of Norse mythology 
were baked into everyday life. Since Norse gods were more about personality than domain, individuals would have to have a particular god that they were connected to based on their own personality and their values. They would carry around symbols of that god. For example, if you felt a connection to the God, the, to the kind of values that Thor represented, you might have a necklace that had a pendant shaped like a hammer hanging on it. Or if you're connected more to Frigga, you might have a ring with a full moon etched into it. It's kind of like how people are into horoscopes and they see the items with their star sign on it, even though they're not totally convinced about the science behind it. Another interesting thing I found in my research is that when Norris first came in contact with Christians, they didn't really have the same understanding of what a god is. So they added the Christian god to their pantheon along with Odin and the rest just as a name on the list. Even though most of the world had already begun to read the New Testament, the Christians passed the Old Testament stories to the Norse instead because those stories had more in common with the eye-for-an-eye attitude of a lot of the Norse legends. It's likely that the Norse saw the stories of the Bible as being more mythological like their own stories, opposed to that of the Christians who understood them to be literal. It took a long time for the Norse to transition as they adopted more and more Christian traditions. And Christianity didn't become a major religion among the Norse groups until well after the Viking Age. Another example of how Norse mythology was different than many other religions like Christianity and the Roman and Greek mythological traditions is that Norris didn't have churches of any kinds. Archaeologists have found evidence of places where certain rituals were performed, but they seem to have multi-purpose sites. Sometimes the sites had remains of small buildings, but often they were outdoor areas where fire pits surrounded a patch of ground. It's believed that the fires were lit so that the smoke could conceal what was happening in the center of the certain rituals. Chemical analysis of these sites also indicate there, there were ritual sacrifices of both humans and animals, although the details are really unclear. Aside from Snorri, one of the most well-known accounts of Vikings comes from a man called Ikben Fodlon. <laughs> man, I, I knew that there was going to be a point where I had to get my, my mouth around a word. Man, this guy's name is really it. So Iqbin was a prominent Muslim scholar who often traveled around Europe chronicling the things he saw and the people that he met. His most famous work was called Risala, which is an Arabic word for journal, and in it he recorded the details of his time spent among a group of Vikings who had made their way to the outskirts of Russia. When he met the Vikings, Iqbin was shocked, horrified, and fascinated by these new strangers. He wrote, I have never seen more physically perfect specimens, tall as date palms, blonde and ruddy. Each man, each man has an axe, a sword, and a knife and keeps them by him at all times. They are tattooed from fingernail to neck with dark green symbols before going on to say they are the filthiest of God's creatures. Indeed, they are like wild asses. He wrote at length about how the Vikings didn't bathe at all and had a plethora of disgusting habits. Now, in the Vikings' defense, most of the world didn't have great hygienic practices at the time. But in the Muslim culture, they bathed 
every day, they brush their teeth, wash their hands regularly, and wash their clothes and bedding. So Ikben was pretty grossed out when he found out that Vikings lived in longhouses with about 10 or 20 people sharing a single bowl of water to rinse their faces and blow their noses into. And they didn't even change the water after uses. Not gonna lie, I'm with Icky on this one. While he was among the Vikings recording the various details of their lives, a Viking chief passed away and to his surprise, Ikben was allowed to attend the funeral. According to his journal, the Vikings began by burying the chief in a shallow grave where they left offerings of bread, beer, and a loot to entertain the chief's spirit while he was waiting to be officially sent into the afterlife. Over the next 10 days, some of the women sewed some special funeral garments for the chief. This 10-day period also allowed time for one of the chief's family's slaves to, let's say, volunteer themselves for a human sacrifice to accompany the chief to his afterlife. When the women finished sewing the funeral clothes, they hauled the chief's boat up onto shore and the ritual leader, referred to as the angel of death, set up this luxurious bed on the deck of the ship while some of the other people dug up the chief. They put him in a new outfit and laid him in the bed on the ship and surrounded him with gifts of beer, fruit, herbs, spices, and the corpses of some ritually sacrificed animals along with a variety of trinkets. When everything was ready, a ceremony was held and the volunteer was sacrificed and placed on board the boat, which was then set ablaze and shoved out into the water. The boat and all aboard burned for about an hour before all the ashes had been scattered to the wind and the water. This single account is the reason most of us recognize the burning longship as being a distinctive feature of Viking funeral tradition, although it's unknown how common this practice was among the Norse people. For all we know, it could have been a special request from that particular chief or a custom unique to that particular group of Vikings. Unfortunately, burials at sea can be difficult to track down, especially when the boat is set on fire, causing most of it to burn away before the remainder eventually sinks. One thing we do know is that not all Vikings were buried at sea. Archaeologists have found a number of burial sites around northern Europe that contain the remains of Vikings, and these graves have provided a lot of fascinating new clues as to how the Vikings handled death. For one thing, remember how I mentioned earlier that the Vikings sometimes used old boats as roofs on their houses? Well, that's not the only thing old boats were used for. They were also used for burials, like the funeral described in Ikben's journal. These burials involved pulling a boat onto dry land, laying the deceased inside, surrounding them with offerings, but instead of setting the boat on fire and shoving it into sea, they buried the entire boat like a giant coffin. Even more interesting is the fact that some boats were used at in this kind of funeral that weren't actually really boats, but replicas made out of stone. I wasn't able to find any information about why this was done, but it seems like the boat-shaped coffin was more of a symbolic thing, so it probably depended on whether or not the deceased family had an extra boat handy. Still, it's pretty cool. The boat graves were common enough 
that at least one graveyard has been found containing several boat graves among a collection of regular burials, and there have been cases where more than one body have been found in a single boat. In one rare case, they even found a grave that had one boat on top of another. Now, I'm assuming that was a pretty big hole. One of the most surprising things that came up in research for this episode is that Vikings apparently loved board games. It seems to have been pretty common to have at least one set of a particular game that was similar to chess aboard when they set out for long journeys to keep their minds sharp and give them something to do on those long days at sea. The boards and pieces were often made of valuable materials like ivory, bone, glass, and amber, proving they held enough cultural importance to be used as status symbols. These board games were often found in Viking graves, especially in boat burials, just like the loot from Ickmen's account. It's believed that this was included to keep the deceased entertained as they transitioned into afterlife. Although, like I said, when we're talking about mythology earlier, it's impossible to know if it was a literal custom and how it was really supposed to be made, how it was supposed to be taken. It's entirely possible that the loot was placed in the chief's grave because it was an item that he valued, and it was just a symbolic gesture. Kind of like how some modern Western funerals involve laying flowers on a casket before the grave gets filled in. The same could have been said of all kinds of other items archaeologists found in Viking graves, like pets, tools, weapons, and trinkets made of precious metals like gold and silver. Well, folks, it's time for my favorite part of the show. It's time to get cooking. Now, as I've learned over the course of making this episode, Vikings were known for a lot of things. Fine dining was definitely not one of them. From what I was able to find in my research, they did most of their cooking over a campfire, and it tended to be simple stuff. So in honor of the Vikings, we're getting back to the basics with a hearty chicken stew for this week's recipe, though I do want to note that I found this recipe while researching Vikings on a site by the Vikings Answer Lady. Thank you, ma'am. To get started, we need two chicken legs and two thighs with skin removed four large carrots, two yellow onions, and one large turnip, all roughly chopped, three or four sprigs of fresh thyme, two cups of chicken broth, half cup of beef broth, a tablespoon each of salt and oil, two tablespoons of butter, a teaspoon each of pepper and powdered whole allspice, and a 12-ounce bottle of your favorite dark beer. Let's kick things off by melting the butter over medium heat. Toss in your chicken and let it sizzle until it's nice and brown, then set it aside for a moment. For now, heat up the oil, the carrots, and the turnip in a pot and sprinkle in about half the salt. Let it cook for two or three minutes and then add in the onion. When the onion starts to turn translucent, go ahead and add your beer, broth, thyme, allspice, pepper, and rest of the salt. Wait until everything's completely warmed up and add the chicken back in and pop a lid on that bad boy. Turn the heat down to low medium and let it simmer. (laughs) As a cook, I have to go back and correct myself. Turn that heat down to medium low and let it simmer for about 40 minutes or until the chicken is cooked all the way through. Serve it up with some bread on the side. As you can see, this recipe is very simple, as was most Viking cuisine. It was also the first recipe that I made for this podcast. 
The biggest question that I had while working on it still remains. Did they have allspice? Personally, I think it's pretty likely they did. As the Phoenicians were invading Greece around the same time as the Vikings were raking havoc on the British Isles in France, it seems very likely that they crossed paths in the Mediterranean, considering both were occupying Sicily at similar times. By the way, if you hadn't caught our Sicily episode, make sure to go back and check it out. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I want to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. This week, I want to give a shout out to my brother, Chris. As with all of my endeavors, he's thrown his full support behind the show, and I really appreciate him. This show is made possible by listeners like Chris and everyone else out there that are that's listening. We couldn't continue to go forward without y'all. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, look out for new episodes every week on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like and follow the show to stay up to date on our latest episodes. We're also on Facebook and Instagram as Dying to Eat Podcast. Thanks again, and until next time, stay lively.